This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 215, brought to you in association with Smart and EnlistedBoard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Martin Rehag, co-founder and CEO of Resistant AI, who provide, quotes, adaptive security, whatever that is, we shall hopefully hear in the show, to discuss reducing fraud by closing the holes in security systems. Earlier in this year, in LFP 196 with Bence Yandrushak, co-founder of Sion, brackets, how come the two fraud companies on the show this year have both been Central European? Uh, we discuss the overall anti-fraud security picture. As with many spheres in life and in evolution in general, there is an ongoing race between improvements in defence and improvements in attack. So it's a topic which perhaps, sadly, may never get old. At the highest level, there is a lot of hype about how wonderful tech is. Tell me about it. I get hundreds of incoming emails a month telling me how tech's going to make the world a far better place. However, if we take a step back, in financial services as a whole, let's say 30, 40 years ago, rates of fraud were lower. This is a bit curious, because if tech was wonderful, surely rates of fraud now should be lower than they were then. So, is there not a paradox here? Is it just marketing hype, or is it the nigh-on religious doctrine that tech is wonderful? All good questions, and listeners who missed the special episode, LFP 200, quotes the philosophy of technology and technique and their existential impact on people, society and civilization with Oswald Spengler and Jacques Ellul might want to go back and check it out. To cut a long story short, technology isn't neutral but tends to concentrate power further and further away from the local communities and ever more in the hands of the powerful. Anyway, let's put all this complicated philosophy to one side and simply dive into discussing the challenge that the security systems you surround your fintech with are less like those of the wonderfully milled Japanese castles where there's barely a millimetre between the huge stones in the wall and more like, well, I guess I'll ask Martin to finish that metaphor in terms of what kind of castle it is like. It's sad to say that many of them have more than a millimetre gap between the stones for people to slip in. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Martin. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Mike. Very nice to meet you. So uh, I mentioned that there's a large correlation going on, which is that Tense was in Hungary and you're in uh, what we used to call the Czech Republic. And we're now supposed to call Czechia, but I can't stand calling it Czechia. In Czech, it's still Czech, isn't it? Yeah. Czechia is very strange. I always thought it should be called Czechland, but uh, maybe I'm a bit uh, biased being from England. And also, we've now had two checks in a row on episodes 214 and 215. We've had to wait a long time for them, but they got here in the end. And when I was just checking with my scrupulous attention to, to detail, whether you were a founder or a co-founder, you said, yes, indeed, you were a co-founder. But in terms of something that hasn't happened before on the podcast, you perhaps are some kind of weird commune over there, because I think in terms of my experience, you've set a precedent for, in terms of being a co-founder, there being more than sort of one or two co-founders to resistant AI. So yes, we do have more than one or two co-founders, because we are a group of nine co-founders, which is quite original as far as startups go. But this is thanks to us as a team working together for many years. And this may be an answer to your question about why we do 
love crime so much as a nation? Because we do love hunting criminals as a team, and we started doing that at the university in 2005, we started a startup in cybersecurity domain called Cognitive Security, and we sold the startup to Cisco in 2013. So we joined a big corporation, started hunting cyber criminals, and after something like 12 years, we got bored by cybercrime, and we decided that we need to do something else. And it was just the beginning or the emergence of the fintech which inspired us. And we saw, well, this is the way how to steal the money, so we can make some money protecting the money. And that's how Resistant AI was born. Oh, cool. So you've got quite some long background. But in terms of plenty of co-founders, how does the governance work? I mean, if you've got one founder, it's always you until the VCs decide you work for them and they own you and they've got control. <laughs> if you've got two co-founders, well, there has to be quite a good relationship there, a bit like the business equivalent of a marriage, and there has to be give and take, and there has to be some way of uh, understanding. If you've got three co-founders, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, to, to, in Chinese thinking, three is a very unstable number. It's likely to break down into a pair and a one, and the one leaves, and I can think of more than one or two fintechs in London. Perhaps it should be one, two, or three. Uh, who have started with three and then gone to two and then and then gone to one. But I don't quite understand what the decision-making process might be amongst all nine of you. Are you all, all sort of kind of clones of one mind? Or do you have majority voting or qualified majority voting or transferable votes? Or, I mean, how on earth does it work? I don't think we ever voted on anything because, <laughs> <laughs> because that wouldn't work for sure. I actually think that nine votes can be more stable and robust than three because if you have a handful of people one of them can get one point of view and it's very hard to talk him out of that view but if you have nine people they typically have you have a spectrum of opinions and you can actually come to conclusion like what is the rational thing to do and we normally do that so i don't think that we will ever vote i haven't actually seen a board meeting of any single company i was at with actually voting these things happen as an exception more than as a rule. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. Well, as I mentioned uh, in the last episode, a little bit about my time in Czechoslovakia, and in particular, a small anecdote about when Czechoslovakia became Czech and Slovakia. One of the bizarre things about communist Czechoslovakia was that it seemed to have this great love for American cowboy songs. <laughs> so I know a few in Czech. I mean, there's one that goes, Tech Kopni, Doty Bedni, Pants von Czech, etc., etc. I'm not very good American accented uh, Czech folk singer myself. And maybe then, with the former love, or perhaps current love of, of the Czechs for American folk songs, they had a great respect for the uh, Native American traditions, where they had a completely different approach from the, the modern American or the uh, European traditions, and that everybody would sit in a circle and patiently listen until everybody had <laughs> spoke. Whereas, as, as Native Americans say, the white man, the only reason uh, that he's quiet is he's waiting to talk. <laughs> I'm certainly very good at that, actually. If someone's talking, I do tend to have a tendency of, I'll oh, just hurry up, and then I can sort of say, say something myself, <laughs> which happens all too often on the podcast. So maybe you are sort of um, either going back to a sort of, uh, well, were you communist or socialist? I don't know. Going back to a more sort of communist background where everyone is in theory equal, ha ha. Or maybe you're just uh, connecting with these bizarre roots with America where everybody actually listened to each other and, and you arrived at a decision. I don't know. What do you think? So actually the two are related because the love of the folk songs comes from the tradition that you, which is older than communism and which survived communism. In 1930s people liked to play being cowboys and they built cottages in the countryside and they were basically playing cowboys and Indians in those cottages. And there was a very strong community around that. 
When the communists came in 1948, that community became a refugee of sorts for people who didn't want to play with the communists. And that's why these old-fashioned songs were so popular in 1980s and 90s in the Czech Republic, because they were kind of the sound of freedom for people who didn't want to play the communist game. Ah, very interesting. I never actually knew that connection. I did stay on my own once with my grandfather-in-law, who was quite old at the time, and um, uh, he was always telling me Look it up in the dictionary, because of course I, there was plenty of words I, that I didn't know. And uh, he was a very interesting chap in that one of his claims to fame was that he'd been shot at and almost killed by four nations. And I can't <laughs> off the top of my head remember, but I think he was around the First World War. I mean, he was born in Vienna, um, but he was Czech in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so the, the differentiation wasn't so strict then. I'm not quite sure who tried to shoot him in the First World War. Obviously the Germans tried to shoot him. I think the sort of Russians tried to shoot him. But yes, the, the other two I, I don't know. So yes, it's very, it was a very colourful century for the uh, Czech uh, Republic and people. Let's hope this century is less colourful. Now, talking of career journeys, uh, I think you've kind of covered it, haven't you? You've spent your life fighting crime. And I can see that um, in terms of fighting crime and finding baddies and finding holes in castles, uh, having nine co-founders is quite a good thing because it's it's not like the kind of startup where you want one person's vision and, and you use the word rational. I'm not sure rational is a great thing when it comes to creativity. I mean, is it rational to marry the person we marry? Is it rational to like strawberries and, and not raspberries? But anyway, in terms of creativity, the muse comes along and someone gets possessed by some crazy idea. And it's crazy people that can change the world because everyone else says, oh, Oh, that's not a very rational thing to do. Why don't you get a job in a bank or an accountancy firm or something like that? So yes, maybe uh, the nine helps. So do you think you're all rational or is it uh, sort of distributed cognition? I think we are very much rational and it's the combination of being rational and very passionate about what you do that is defining the company. Because to fight the cyber criminals on, on a large scale or financial criminals at scale of the whole world, we actually have to build engines that model how they think. And this is one other thing that Czechs and Hungarians are good at. It's thinking like the other side does, because that's what you needed to survive in the region for the last hundred years. Like there is a reason why we call the whole part of your bloodlands. It's really a part where being cunning and able to survive was quite important to survive. So what we do as a team is that we think one step ahead of the criminal. What we like to think is that this is a concept of the escalation game, which we play on top of the systems that do have loopholes that we define. So our customers built amazing automated systems. They open financial services to people. They could never use such service before because of the cost reasons or efficiency reasons. But the downside is that some people take advantage of that. And our side is really to protect those systems and close the loopholes as soon as we can. Yes, and I'm sure being sort of students and sort of rascally young teenagers always looking to sort of uh, beat the system is, is a very good background. And actually, I was just talking to someone recently about the importance of play when you're young or playing with some small business or playing with ideas, going back to the creativity. Well, let's dive into the main course then, which is plugging the holes in the castle. So what, in the first case, is the, is the nature of the problem? I, I referred in a fairly incoherent fashion in the introduction to the fact that technology is often presented as the solution, capital T, capital S, but actually upon closer inspection is quite often the problem, capital T, capital P. And there's something in the nature of software and technology as a whole that almost means that it's bound to create problems. It is, always. So basically when you had a problem and then you apply technology to it, you create a different problem. It's shifted, it may be smaller, it can be bigger, but it is a problem still, because you will never have a perfect model of the world in its richness in technology. 
And this imperfect model is something that gets exploited very much. The way how security people like me think is that we think in terms of weaknesses and opportunities. Because if you think like a traditional engineer, you don't want the airplane to fall, but you know that the air is not going to conspire too much against you intentionally. The people we fight are intentionally conspiring against us. They don't want to be caught. They certainly don't want to be apprehended and they don't want to lose all the money they have stolen. So we know that we have very smart adversary that's actively looking at all the loopholes and being just pr protected from a random failure is not enough. You must protect your system from a smart, learning and intelligent adversary. The good example is if you automate a fintech process or a financial process and you build a fintech around it, you typically list steps you take. So for example, customer onboarding, you have six or seven steps you take in a bank before you onboard a customer. It can be 15 in some cases, but you have a list. And you take a consultant from McKinsey or someone else and you walk with him through the list and you prepare a basic process that you automate. The catch is that there are many things that are unsaid. When you make that list, you don't list everything and every single condition that happens without people noticing that they are actually doing that. So one example we like to give is when you call an API of a fintech and you want to onboard a customer or you call an API of a traditional bank and you want to onboard a customer automatically in a fully digital way and you onboard 50 customers with basically adjacent street addresses. No one notices a thing. It's all normal because the software doesn't care. They don't know what people should be doing. If you walk and if you take 15 people and walk them into a bank branch and try to onboard them on a single identity or a very similar set of documents and a third or fourth attempts, people in that branch notice and they call the police because they have some common sense and they see that something is out of ordinary. The curse of any software process is that you miss that common sense unless you edit with system like ours. Yes, an artificial intelligence person I was speaking to recently said that it should, apart from marketing, never have been called artificial intelligence. It should have been called artificial stupidity. And I know what you mean about the air isn't conspiring against aeroplanes, but even in a limit case where you haven't got someone trying to outwit you, if you watch Air Crash Investigate, you find that even in the best tested software for aeroplanes, there is a set of conditions hmm. which the designers of the software never quite imagined would happen. And in this particular set of conditions, the plane crashes and everyone dies. But the good thing there is at least they can update it. So I think there is something, as you say, in the nature of software as a bunch of rules, that it's never going to cover the whole of reality because reality is way more complex than rules. I mean, to give another domain, Formula One or MotoGP, they will get a new part and it's being developed, you know, with all the massive computational fluid dynamics and you name it and blah, blah, blah. And it's supposed to make the bike go faster, but it doesn't in reality. <laughs> yeah. you know, reality will never match with the artificial understanding of it. Now, as you say, when you've got people trying to beat the system, you're in a whole new domain of escalation and things getting worse and worse and worse. So my kind of rule of thumb that is in my mind, which is that a bit like you can never make a plane that's guaranteed never, ever, ever to crash in any circumstance, including all the ones you haven't imagined yet. You can never have a system which is 100.00% sure of beating every criminal. But there's a kind of power law here. The more money you're prepared to spend, or sorry, ex exponentially decreasing, that the more money you're prepared to spend, the lower percentage of people are going to get through. 
But you might have, for example, ended up with a 15,000 <laughs> step onboarding process. You have no clients, no baddies to get through, but no goodies either. How do you see those dimensions as, well, the more money you want to pay, uh, and the more hassle you want to make it, the greater the security can be, but equally then there's a trade-off. So I think there is a couple of trade-offs to be had here. One of them is the one between the friction and the security which you outlined. But actually this is a triangle because you have a basically triangle of friction, security and intelligence and the information you have. Because if you have a perfect information, if you know everything about anyone in your country, you can onboard people quite easily which is often the case in China, where you can onboard people using the government API and the social scoring built by the government. And you don't have fraud concerns, but you do have other concerns as a Chinese citizen. So you probably don't want that in Europe, and actually it's becoming illegal. You don't want it, I don't want it, but plenty of people in the World Economic Forum and some governments seem to want it, but never mind, that's another story entirely. So that's something we want to avoid. The, so so we, we shouldn't use all the data and we shouldn't build a big brother systems but we still need to have a usable and secure financial mechanisms for people to use. And this is where the intelligence comes into play. We need to have a minimum set of information so, that, so as to keep the process secure, reasonably so, without losing too much money, but onboard people without friction. And that's exactly the role of machine learning in the AI. And it's the role of security-specific machine learning, which is basically discovering what are the latest attacks figured out by the people and preventing those attacks. Because blanket prohibition of everything unusual makes life first very boring, but second also the systems very expensive to maintain and leads to 15,000 onboarding steps you have mentioned. So are you talking kind of metaphorically speaking or less metaphorically speaking with applying the same approach to the security system surrounding a fintech or a bank as the antivirus program does. I turn on my antivirus program in the morning and it sort of spends about what, half an hour downloading itself <laughs> and updating itself. And I make a couple of cups of tea these days before my computer actually will speak, speak to me. But it's a kind of like it's a real time update. We found that the latest exploit is to, I don't know, stand on your head and, and funnily enough, I don't know, just mentioning a random name, Citigroup's or artificial intelligence thing doesn't realize that actually you're, you're not sort of whoever you're saying you are. So normally you would have infinite amount, by definition, in an AI system of sufficient intelligence, you have infinite number of exploits. You can argue that for humans, the whole art and the concept of art and beauty is an exploit on, exploit on our intelligence because it's something that looks appealing to you without actually being rationally appealing for you as a biological individual. And you can have the same things for machine learning systems that make any kind of decision for the onboarding. And you can basically, you can prove mathematically, and some people have done that, Ron Shamir from uh, Tel Aviv University, that you can actually find infinite amount of exploits in any such system, an infinite amount of failures which means they are inherently insecure and unsafe if you can find these exploits quickly enough. And what we do as a system is we sit on top of them and we look for people finding those exploits and we stop them because before they can cause a major damage. The good thing about financial system is that the damage is typically progressive and we don't lose 100 people like in the case of plane crash. So we can learn on the job. On the other side, we, can, we have to learn very quickly because our customers lose money on every single case we learn. So the ability to learn very quickly is something that defines resistant AI because it's necessary per condition of operating in the domain. Some people say, 
what you do can be easily done with deep learning if I get 1 million samples. And I say, well, that 1 million samples is going to cost, cost $1 billion on average. So maybe that's not such a good business as you think so. So this is the adaptive security that I mentioned the phrase from your website before? That's the adaptive security because we have to be very adaptive and we have to be very quickly learning so that we adapt to what the attackers are actually doing and we don't add friction to actual like legitimate users by fighting hypotheticals that are not occurring in practice. So it is metaphorically similar for the non-technical listener to antivirus software which just updates itself. So, and with the AV software, you know that, for example, with the US Army, when they turn on the computer in the morning, it takes one hour before it becomes operational. I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> so, you are not the worst sufferer in the world. And recently, there was a funny story when they took a Secretary of Defense and turned the computer in front of him and said, told him, do something, sir. And he couldn't. And he had to wait for an hour, and that was quite embarrassing. And then they realized they have an issue. So too much security can be a bad thing, but don't tell my colleagues because we actually have plenty of IT security in the company. <laughs> well, I think part of my problem is I've got a Windows computer which just gets slower and slower and slower as it downloads more and more bloatware every week and various things keep going wrong. I've got, I think I mentioned on the podcast before, I've got an old laptop from 90, late 90s which has never connected to the internet. I turn it on, it almost immediately starts. You know, this computer was new three years ago, now it's rubbish. That's another story. Anyway, let's turn to a different perspective before we get more into this sort of rules and keeping up with the attackers. So on from a sort of sociological perspective and going back to this exponential cost, if I set up a fintech tomorrow and I need to keep myself secure and I need to onboard the right people, then from a sociological perspective, as it were, it will matter a hell of a lot whether, for the sake of argument, I'm just getting, I don't know, Czech engineers onboarding, or whether I'm getting CIA and GCHQ and the Russian equivalent and, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, Mossads and all these kind of things. So there's presumably a spectrum of naughty person from sort of teenager in his, in his bedroom, age 13, through to the highest grade, you know, global intelligence um, bad guys. And how do you approach that if you're a fintech? I mean, you, in a fintech, there's no point worrying about the CIA or GCHQ hacking you because they're going to do it regardless, I assume. And actually, they're unlikely to want to be, to be getting in some app bank that's going to save them 0.01% on FX rates. <laughs> so I think there is three criteria in, in the trade-off or decision you're making. One of them is, you know the old joke about two friends walking in Savannah in Africa and seeing a lion, and one of them starts to put sneakers on. And when the other asks, what are you doing? He's going to kill both of us because he can outrun both of us. He says, I just want to outrun you. And this is exactly what's happening in the fintech security and financial security. You don't want to be the least secure way of payment. You don't want to be the least secure way uh, how to onboard customers in the country or in a well-defined market. Because if you are that slowest gazelle in the herd, you are food. You don't want that. The second criteria is that you may end up being lucky. And we have incredible situations where we have multiple customers doing exactly the same thing in a country with exactly the same protection, one of them being hit by fraud in extreme manner. And basically our team fighting next to their team and basically plugging holes left and right and stopping high-scale attempts to defraud them basically from millions of dollars per day. And the other customer is just sitting there and saying, well, why do I have you? I don't need any service like that. And we can't even tell them about the first customer because it's confidential. And it's just being lucky. And then suddenly something flips and the other customer becomes the slowest gazelle and the game changes. The third criteria is really about 
the technology advance like don't make it easy to steal enough money so that the smart people will be motivated to steal, to steal from you. So it's about scalability. It's how easy is it to scale up the operations against you. If it's very easy to open million fake accounts in the service, then you motivate some very high skilled attackers to go against you. If it's slow and boring, and if you lose customers in the sign-up process, you also do lose criminals in the same process. But you don't want that because of your marketing department would be crazy. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful. So I mentioned before that there's more fraud now perhaps than there was 30 years ago before this sort of technology stuff existed in its current format. What is the kind of scale of the problem? I mean, the, the numbers I've seen in the past you know, are, are, are car hold and not present cards, credit cardy numbers and, and all that kind of stuff. But just in terms of people onboarding bad actors who are there just to sort of take off money. Well, as usual, I think actually just thinking about it, the state's the worst one there. So we've just got, oh, I don't know, about seventh prime minister in about two years. We've turned into Italy, actually. We used to be quite different, but we're not. And uh, he did a brilliant job of uh, not only borrowing half a trillion pounds and bankrupting us, but also of totally ignoring what was predicted to be 80, 90 billion pounds of fraud. So as always, the government is the, uh, the, the best one for giving away money. But going back to my metaphor of a castle, if there's such a thing in your median fintech in London or in the median fintech in Europe or in the median fintech in America, as a metaphor, are there small holes where mice can get into the, you know, the average fintech castle? Have some left the front gates open and the drawbridge down? I mean, what's just to just give us a feel or, or percentage or stats? I mean, just you know, give us a feel for the scale of the problem. It can be quite big in some cases. So the scale of the problem is really worldwide. So we see actually the most advanced attacks and the most advanced attempts to deceive us in Southeastern Asia. This is the leading uh, region in terms of sophistication and scale of the attacks. We believe because basically if you have an IT career in those countries, being a criminal can pay off very nicely and handsomely. I used to teach a university class for security for something like 18 years. I was teaching students how to steal cars and how to steal money from bank accounts because we have to have some market for our products. <laughs> and uh, one of the lectures I was giving was like basically figure out how much money you need to steal as a criminal to basically make it worthwhile to become a criminal, which turned out to be something like 100 million euros for an average person to keep your quality of life as if you were doing a legitimate mid normal job for an engineer. And it's almost impossible to steal that much, or it was impossible to steal that before crypto. Crypto made it possible one way, Fintech is the other way how to do it. Because now you can basically steal in a scalable way. You ask why there is so much fraud and now I will answer you. There is so much fraud because police isn't very good at enforcing basically laws against crimes in a digital world. And the probability of getting caught as a digital criminal are something like 1% or less compared to physical crime. So if you are a criminal of any kind, like doing purely digital crimes is the way to go. If you do them in the international scale and you steal data from one country, commit crime in other country and you never touch these countries in your life, you're actually quite safe. Not perfectly safe, but quite so. And uh, this means that basically there is no decrease of fraud due to police catching criminals. And traditional criminals are switching to fraud and financial crime because why wouldn't they? You don't have to stand at the corner of the street with a bag of sand. You just sit on your couch and steal your money. You make more money. And if you have tried to drop a bank branch recently, I'm not sure how often you do that, but uh, there is no cash. Why would you keep cash in a bank? No one does that anymore. No one needs cash. So there is nothing to steal. 
The only thing to steal in the bank is data. That's a good point, actually. In the 60s and 70s, one of the terrible things that used to happen sort of regularly and was on the news was uh, mining disasters in this country. And we still mined coal. A mining tunnel would collapse and miners would be trapped underground for several days and there'd be a big panic and the news would love it, of course. And the other thing which used to happen quite a lot was, was bank jobs. You know, people <laughs> sort of sawing off shotguns and sort of tights over their head and, you know, running in and getting in their jag and, uh, and escaping. But actually, it hadn't occurred to me that one of the types of crime has... Um, gone down has that. So, I mean, the other thing is actually, which is not quite correct, which is that over here in the UK, as we're sort of collapsing at a, at a rate of knots, the police have given up detecting crime. I think, you know, something like less than 3% of all burglaries are actually investigated and, and they find a result. But they're very interested if you say the wrong thing on, on Twitter about uh, whatever the sort of the latest woke thing is on whatever. So more generally then, so it's going to be quite a long time until we get a kind of Interpol that actually sort of cares about global fraud and fights it and, and, and employs people like you. So in the meantime, it's up uh, presumably to the private sector and the private sector companies just to defend themselves as if we're living in a kind of anarchic post-collapse of Roman Empire time in Europe when there are lots of local warlords, but there's no central authority providing, as it were, state security of the Roman Empire. If you're inside the Roman Empire, you're relatively safe compared to, I don't know, being those barbarians north of you in Germany and the Huns and all that lot. So, like, barbarians are one metaphor you can use. The one I would use is actually slightly different and less interesting, because I say we are the lock on the door. If you build a fintech system and you don't build security around the decisions you take, it's like leaving your house unlocked when you go for a walk and hoping that you will find everything in order when you come back. It's not the smartest technique even in today's London, which is quite safe as a city. And that's the bare minimum of precaution you take before you buy alarm system and insurance and all of the other precautions you take. So I think that some level of decision security and securing the decisions is something that's really necessary for all of the fintechs and banks to take. Yes, well, we'll come on at the end to the products and services that resistant AI offer, because, of course, every fintech in London will have some security system. And, and from what I'm hearing you saying, you're, you're quite good at helping them plug the gaps in their castle and, and, by the way, point out that someone's actually just removed a few bricks around the back and there's a new gap they didn't uh, know about, as it were. So when we were talking before, there were two interesting dimensions, one of which I hadn't heard people talk about so much. The first was the onboard. We've spoken about onboarding and identity and, and all this kind of thing many times on the podcast, as you can imagine. If you go back eight years, people were more naive about it in London. It didn't take very long and much money stolen from your organisation to take it much more seriously and employ sort of clever people with um, beards and t-shirts to do something about it and at least reduce that. The one issue that you mentioned, which um, I hadn't heard discussed much before, was once you've got the baddies inside the castle, you've got the ninjas are inside the castle now and they're running around your castle doing, doing damage, about mopping up and cleaning up the bad actors who you've onboarded by mistake. So do you want to tell us a, a little bit about that? I mean, does the average mega code, you know, the average Barclays or Citigroup, are they actively trying to, coming from the premise that, oh shit, by mistake, we've let some baddies in, let's find them? Or does the average fintech have that attitude? Or is it sort of a, an afterthought? Well, it's required by regulator. If you don't want your fintech or bank shut down by the authorities, you better do that, or at least have paperwork proving you've done that. It's presumably the second, because if it was wonderful, fraud would be going down, not going up. And the regulatory thing is another sociological game where they give you a number of boxes to tick and you, you tick them. But I'm, I'm sure that you know, if you or I knew that, let's say, every bank in London, fintechs included, what percentage of their actual client base were naughty, that it would vary. And some would be doing it better than others. And especially if you look outside London as well. So what we, what we do quite a lot is the follow-on. And this, this is basically on two dimensions. One of them is customer risk scoring. 
where we basically do look at behavior of the customers and we score how much of a risk do they present to the bank looking at the behavior. So if you just keep getting your salary, paying your mortgage, your gas bill, and that's it because you don't have any money left, you are at very low risk of financial crime. If you are receiving money from 16 different entities per day around the globe, you put them together and send them to Bitcoin exchange, you are quite a bit different level of risk as a customer. And many banks do this check manually. All of the banks and all of the financial institutions should follow AML regulations and time and laundering laws set up basically in the wake of 2001 attacks. And these are supposed to find terrorist money and financing of basically all illegal activities and laundering of proceeds of criminal activities globally. The effectiveness is quite low because you typically find something like 0.1% of the proceeds of financial crime and you spend enormous amounts of money and human effort finding those. And our system helps with that. Because we basically do something on three levels. We basically we split down things into behavior segmentations. So we look how customers of the bank behave. We break them down into hundreds of small groups and say this is restaurants in London or this is car drivers or taxi drivers of Uber in Birmingham. And then we know how much money they should be making. We know how should, how should they be behaving where do they spend the money and so on. And when we see them deviating from that very narrow sector of activity, we can see that something might be happening. It could be account takeover. It could be someone taking over the company, working with the legitimate history, but doing something nefarious in the future, or it could be some other malicious activity. So that's really how the system uses AI to save human work and basically find more criminals, which is exactly what we are passionate about. The passion is finding smart guys. I see. So in terms of how this has been developing in recent years in fintech, there are two uh, related activities in a sense. The first is more data points. You're zooming into a low-res JPEG to get much more data points that you now know it's taxi drivers in the west of Birmingham, whereas before you knew it's taxi drivers in in the UK. So you've got more data points in the first place, and then you've got, quotes clever computers, unquotes, or algorithms, which are finding patterns within this increasingly high-res JPEG. I mean, you've gone to HD JPEGs, and you can see much more than you could you know, when it was 240p or something like that. Exactly. And we do this in two ways. First, it's building relationships. And one thing we have been doing for the last 15 years, first in the cybercrime domain and now, is using context. Because when you look at what people do when they get an alert from the underlying system, which is based on rules, they investigate. They think like, who is this guy? How is he making money? What is the way of basically selling this stuff? Is he buying enough like materials so that he can build the produce and so on? So you do this as a financial investigator and we can do this automatically. So you don't have to pay people to do that. And those people are honestly much happier if they can do some actual investigation work instead of just cleaning alerts. The second level is that we build relationships. So we look at where is the money going. We follow the money and we follow the trace. And then we can find some interesting schemes how to pretend that you are a legitimate entrepreneur, but actually you are not. And we know plenty of cases of money laundering through fake e-shops, fake anything. And uh, these are basically very easy to discover for us, but very hard for humans to tell apart. Excellent. Well, I like the idea that by 
putting the proper combination of human beings and, and clever computers, or rather at least the clever designers behind the computer programs, that the human beings are then left with sort of value-added stuff as opposed to doing the sort of moronic drudgery, pattern-spotting stuff, which humans aren't just going to... Exactly. Um, right, OK, so look, time's going by. That's all very interesting. And so I guess one can guess what the future is going to hold. As usual, the future tends to hold more of the same from the past and then some different things as well. <laughs> That's very low-res JPEG. But maybe you want to give us a little bit of a, a feel for how you think this whole sphere will go in the next few years. So I can give you our take on the future. Our take is that the criminals are going to get better and better and smarter and smarter. And we see this by day. What worked last year doesn't work anymore. And we have to be learning basically every single week. And we release a new version of the software every hour, essentially now. What we see is, and what we come with, is basically defense in depth principle, where we have layers and layers of defense, which you don't see as a user or as a customer, but which we are building on our side, so that if you outsmart one layer, you get caught by the other. And then the layer before can learn and can stop your second attempt. And then we go back and we keep adding more layers and more smarts, so as to create a maze, something that's very hard to navigate for the attackers, and we essentially send them to your competitors who don't buy our services, which is uh, also an efficient marketing technique for us as a company. <laughs> the concept uh, like that with multiple layers of defense based on AI is called identity forensics. It's a layer on top of the identity verification because we don't only verify who you claim to be, but we also verify how you behave, how you are digitally behaving, how you are, who you are pretending to be in terms of address, where you live and so on, and what is your business or life like. And we only use the information to catch criminals. That's the only thing we do as a company. Excellent. We'll come back next on to how you interact with fintechs and FS and perhaps other sectors as well, insofar as they all have security systems. So maybe you can make it clearer to the listener whether you're, as it were, just another coach you put around the outside or in parallel or something like that. But before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all your listeners out there and my brand partner for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The listedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Martin, you've mentioned Resistant AI once or twice, what you're doing. Let's move on from the topic now to your products and services and if I was a fintech, how I might be using them. And let's just start off with a simple question, which I, I assume some listeners are thinking uh, along with myself, which is, yes, I know it rains and it's a bit cold, so I bought a coat at the shop. And uh, yes, you're telling me that sometimes the rain gets in my coat. I understand. So do you, as it were, give them another coat over? Or, or, or maybe as usual, maybe as usual, it's much better to tell people what's actually happening rather than come up with a metaphor that doesn't work. <laughs> So typical way how to start using us is very simple. You call the API, you give us the documents you are getting from the customers for onboarding, and we tell you which ones of these have been modified, which in case of landing applications, typically between 1% and up to 10% of these documents, depending on the region and application kind, are fake. So we see people faking their identities, which means identity theft, which means you never see your money back, to people faking their income, based on different motifs, which means reducing chances of getting your money back. The second layer is that we look at how people behave digitally and how do they submit the information so that we can discover the digital serial fraud gangs that try to steal all the money you have at once. Because if they can get through the little hole in the wall in the castle once, they can actually get 10,000 samurais into that castle. And then it's not castle anymore. 
And then we look into the financial transactions and behavior of on transactional level, which we typically layer on top of the existing AML systems, because we don't want to replace, we want to augment and improve. The metaphor I'm using is that in cybersecurity, typical bank would have something like 50 or 60 products just to protect the data and the computers. They only have a handful of products to protect the actual decisions and the money they have as an institution, which I think is something that's going to change very dramatically in the future, either before or after the money is stolen. I see. So coming back to castles, uh, inappropriate metaphor probably again, it would be like I have a castle, it's got a few holes in, you guys are experts in how people attack castles, uh, and you send a sort of a small regiment over just to sort of hang around outside in a tent and uh, help the defences. And in particular, uh, you station some of your soldiers near the, the, the known gaps. So, and this is exactly actually what happened with Japanese castles, because uh, you know that in Tokugawa period, in the 17th century onwards, castles, this Japan was quite a stagnant country technologically. Castles were actually an exception, because in the beginning of the 19th century, English came to fight Dutch in Nagasaki, and Japanese were not thrilled about that, and they couldn't do anything about it. So they decided to bring more knowledge and to upgrade their defenses against the English, which I think is a common and reasonable thing to do. <laughs> and uh, that's exactly a security escalation, but on a much slower scale than we are doing now. Now we have the same escalation basically every day. What used to take centuries now takes days. I see. And in terms of your APIs, I mean, I don't know how the, what the economics are. Do you charge per call of an API? Do you charge per client, per suite? Or like we've got a gold, silver, bronze. I mean, how, how's the product suite layout? And then what is your client domain th that you're looking at right now? Wh which countries are you operating in? So we actually operate in uh, all of the Europe, United Kingdom and United States mostly. But we have customers active across the globe. So we are seeing countries, uh, documents and data from 190 countries and territories. So basically all the, all of the planet. The way how you buy is actually quite friendly with the customer. We typically go by volume and then we package volumes into packages so that customers get predictability and they get ease of consumption. But we are not difficult. Our passion as a company is really hunting criminals and stopping them. So even if you are a tiny fintech, and even if you are just starting, we will figure out a way how to help you. I see. And so how many clients have, have you got uh, so far? So we have about 50 customers at this point, and we hope, hope to significantly increase that number by the year end, because we have more than doubled since the beginning of this year. And we have customers from very small fintechs to very large banks and institutions spanning multiple countries. And when your clients come to you, and they say, hey, look, we, we think we need you. Are they coming because they feel for some reason internally that the existing fraud rate or the loss rate is too high and that coming to you might reduce it? So one way how to come to us is to have some losses and then, well, you need to fix the, fix the hole you know about. The other reason is you have too many AML alerts. You have too many people burning their lives away on processing alerts, not achieving anything, and you want them to achieve something tangible. So you use us to prioritize the effort and actually have your AML team deliver something very efficiently. And the third reason is that you simply want to know. You have some customers and you feel slightly unsure about, is everything normal? Do I know everything about the customers? Do I know everything about the behavior? Should I be concerned about something? And that's the reason to come to see us as well. Right. Okay. Well, listeners that want to check you guys out, you're resistant.io. Uh, 
AI, I can see what you've done there, that's very clever. And in terms of being a great company today, what do you need more of in the next year or two to become even greater? I assume the answer to that question is not more co-founders, because nine may be enough. Well, the answer is uh, we definitely need more customers, because we believe that we provide the best security out there against fake documents to fake people to fake accounts. But uh, what we need is more automation and more technology, because the answer to security challenges isn't that we will go back to manual verification and human verifications because that's pretty much impossible but we need concentrated investment into security resilience and fraud resilience of financial system this needs to be across the board excellent well that's been really interesting conversation and i can definitely see that where the world is commercially right now it's moved on from oh i'm going to form a fintech tomorrow i need a security system in Actually, yes, you do. That's correct. But actually, there is more you can do, given that the nature of tech means it's so much easier for organized criminals, as you say, literally, to steal loads of money online than it is to run into banks, risk getting shot, risk getting uh, locked up in prison. So what you're doing is a wonderful thing. And I wish you, your other eight co-founders and the rest of Resistant.ai every success in the future. So thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn. Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride.
Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight d